This is The Craft of Governance, a podcast providing insight into the boardroom. Welcome to the Director's Academy podcast series focused on craft of governance, sponsored by Allegis Partners. I'm Keith Meyer, the president and one of the founders of the Academy. During this series of podcasts, we will invite a number of our faculty members to share their unique insights and perspectives on key elements of corporate governance and board leadership, from individual committee best practices to developing an effective working relationship with the CEO, influencing the corporate culture, leading the board through a crisis, and other topics. Today, the topic is public company director duties and responsibilities, and we're pleased to have Bob Degnan with us. Bob has been a, uh, a longstanding partner at Baker McKinsey over 40 years, recently retired. He's served on a number of public and private company boards and has deep experience with corporate governance. He's also a Director's Academy board member. Welcome to the podcast, Bob. Well, thank you, Keith. It's my pleasure. We have five areas I think that would be uh, interesting to cover today, Bob, including uh, the business judgment rule, director's rights, the primary focus of a board, significant board oversight areas, and representing the best interest of company stakeholders. Why don't we start with uh, the basic duties of a public company director and share with uh, us your thoughts around the business judgment rule, if you would. I'm happy to do that. Uh, The courts of Delaware have uh, longstanding put together what's called the business judgment rule. And the components, I break it down slightly differently than the courts might do, but I break it down to uh, conflicts. Uh, There can be no conflicts. Uh, You have to be informed. You have to exercise uh, good faith. And you have to act in the long-term best interests of the shareholders. Starting with conflicts, I like to think about how you, as a board member, go about listening to the possibility that there might be a conflict and then what would you do about it and then what should the board do about it and one of the examples that I've used is where CEO announces uh, she announces that uh, she'd met a couple of days ago with the CFO and CEO of another company and when you hear that you know that the CFO uh, is a cousin of yours And this is the first time you've heard it. So I will normally ask the question of what would you do about that? If you're on the board. If you're on the board. And the answer very clearly is you have to disclose. This is is, uh, my cousin who's the CFO. And I think everyone here should should know about that. And I'll be happy to follow the instructions of the board. And a good board is going to ask you to recuse yourself from participating in any discussions concerning this business opportunity and certainly not be in the room at the time a vote is taken and best practices call for both of those actions to be recorded in the minutes that you made the disclosure that you recused yourself you weren't present in the room and that you uh, uh, did not participate in voting Bob what if it's a low level or a person in the organization, well, down in the organization, is there a, a different kind of standard or thought around that? Uh, I think there is. Uh, let's deal with another board member whose uh, uncle uh, works part-time on the loading dock. And uh, should you disclose that? The answer is absolutely. We're not talking about barely meeting minimum Uh, corporate standards, and I will talk about this rather frequently. I will comment on that. But really, corporate best practices, and you should disclose it. 
and I'm going to guess that the board will evaluate it and say that they do not feel that it is a conflict and that you can participate in the uh, discussions and in the voting. Again, best practice would call for that to be placed in the minutes. You've made it known and you've, you've discussed it. made it known it. and right. the board has discussed it and they've concluded that there is no conflict. A kind of a subset of the word conflict is independent. Uh, it's slightly different than a conflict, uh, is, is I guess somewhat different than a conflict. If you are in a real minority view on the board and you honestly believe that your view was a correct one, then I think you respectfully indicate that you appreciate the discussions that every uh, other member of the board has had concerning this but you have a little different view and that you intend to vote in a particular way and you'll do it in a very respectful way. That's independence. You don't have to go along with the rest of the board, even if it's overwhelming majority. If you honestly believe another uh, approach to the particular issue is in the best interest of the company and shareholders, then you have to act independently and, and say so. The next area is being informed. And I offer, and I typically look at Enron as a classic example. One of the members of Enron, of the Enron board at the time the difficulties came up, happened to be the dean of a graduate school of accounting of a major university in the United States. And he would attend the meetings and Jeff Skilling would disclose what they were called true sales. They would take a few assets off the balance sheet, put them over into a new company, a, a subsidiary, uh, but nonetheless, uh, I don't mean a subsidiary, a new company, independent, so-called, from Enron, and then a whole bunch of liabilities would go over to that balance sheet as well. And the basic issue was an accounting one. Under the accounting, uh, under GAAP and the, uh, the applicable accounting conventions, should those balance sheets be consolidated? And if there was a single person in the room who should have known the answer to that, it should have been the dean of the Graduate School of Accounting of this major university. And he had said to a, a good friend of mine, a very reputable friend, uh, very knowledgeable in the area, one of the, co or one of the founders of the NACD, uh, that it was so complex he didn't understand it. He wasn't informed. And nonetheless, he went ahead and voted for it. He then said he relied on the legal opinion obtained from Vincent Elkins and from the audit opinions uh, uh, obtained from uh, Arthur Anderson. The point, two points come from this. You have an obligation to be informed, and if you feel you are informed, that you have all of the information reasonably available, and that you are informed, then it's okay to draw comfort or slash rely on the opinions of outside counsel or, uh, or auditors or accountants. But if you're not informed, you may not use that as an excuse. You may not rely on it. Say, I really don't understand it, but I'm going to go ahead and rely on yeah, it. If the complexity of the issue is such that you really don't understand it, then how does that impact whether or not you're an informed director? You're not, in, you're not informed is the answer, and you need to have the courage to say, I'm sorry. Uh, more often than not, if you're having difficulty being informed, because it's an area really outside your daily expertise. But that was not the case here. But this is where the audit committee should have 
tackled that issue much differently, right? Well, I think I think Not they should have. They and I think the uh, I don't know necessarily the audit committee, but I certainly think that the. Uh, any subcommittee of the board who was who was uh, overseeing this transaction or series of transactions should have known what materials uh, need to be prepared and pr provided to all board members so they could understand the complexity of the transaction. And that wasn't done. And as a board member, you have to say, listen, I need a little bit more information. I'm not understanding this. I apologize, but I'm, I'm not. I need a little bit more information, and I need it in such and such an area, such and such an area, uh, before I can cast an informed vote. And as I say, you're entitled to all reasonable, uh, reasonably available information. If the lawyers uh, happen to be sitting in the room at the time, the accountants sitting in the room at the time, and you're not uh, informed, you certainly can say, would you please explain to me the rationale behind your decisions, behind your opinions? And that's possibly one way you become informed. But first and foremost, you must be uh, informed. And it's a, it can be a difficult thing, particularly when it's outside your area of, of expertise. Let's move, uh, Bob, to director rights, and what should a new director expect uh, as they begin their first public company board experience uh, relative to director rights? Any thoughts on that? I always use the words need slash want. As a new board member, you're going to need a fair amount of information as to doing a little deeper dive into how the company works, who has what responsibilities, and so forth. And I recommend to new board members that they try and set aside a time with the CEO, the CFO, uh, CMO, HR person, uh, and to go into the corporate offices and begin to learn a little bit more about the company, how it actually does business, who makes the decisions, how they're made, so you become uh, informed. You certainly have uh, uh, the, the right to company's records. You have the right to, boards have the right to hire their own lawyers. Uh, but the, let me go over to the wants side. We see more often than not, wants uh, more often than should be, uh, board members uh, not respecting the line between what you need to know and what you merely want to know. Uh, there are a number of things you may want to know, but you don't need to know it based upon the, uh, in dealing with the issues that are in front of you. And that can cause uh, a problem in working and re the respect between responsibilities and duties of management and the duties of being a board. And it can be, it, it can be an issue. You have access to professional advisors, lawyers, accounting firms, compensation committees, hire experts in connection with uh, uh, industry practices, uh, what is the norm in different industries, and it's uh, wise for compensation committees to obtain experts every couple of years as they go about their duties. The same uh, thing is true for nominating and governance. Uh, have access to outside resources if you need it in dealing with un, uh, unsolicited offers to acquire the company, for example. It's good to know who your bankers are. It's good to know who you're uh, uh, working with people who can guide you with respect to these things. So you're not relying, as a member of the board, solely on the expertise of management. Uh, you are entitled to turn to outside uh, guidance to assist you. Back to the topic of uh, the line between you know information yep. that's needed to perform uh, as a as a as a director, and then where management uh, carries on their duties. How would you, as a board member, 
try to enforce or, or protect that line for management or if it's another director who's going over that line how would that how would that work I have had uh, personal experience in this and I was fortunate to be on a board of a company that uh, did annual valuations of the board as a board and annual valuations of each board member and uh, the I, chair of the board did that, led that the chair and one other person would then meet with the individual members and say this is this is where you're performing well this is where you need to improve and uh, I took the time to make a comment on a particular board member where I thought the line had been crossed uh, between management and policy and uh, it was addressed in the and uh, the, then the interviews which took place later on between the chair of the board and one other member of the board and the individual to kind of address the issue. It wasn't terribly serious, but it was just an opportunity to say this is where you could improve. And the behavior changed? It didn't. <laughs> it didn't, uh, unfortunately. Let me make one comment here because there are many people who enjoy being on the boards of not-for-profits. It's almost necessary to cross the line because not-for-profits management and staff generally lack a lot of the expertise that they need and they find it when people join the board. So there you cross the line, you share your expertise with management, and then you step back across the line to the board side when management comes in with its recommendations. You don't tell management what the recommendation should be. And that's the expectation that's built into that relationship that's, between the board that, and the that, not-for-profit. That's exactly right. right. And you do find that in a not-for-profit world, and it's, and it's uh, knowledge and experience that board members have, which are extremely important to be shared with management. So if you've only had a not-for-profit board experience, you may think that that's the norm, and then you start a public company or private company no, board No experience. question about it. And it's, it's one of the things, it's one of the key things that must be addressed in onboarding to go through a very formal, a more formal board orientation, which I believe very, very strongly in, and I have conducted these personally. I have put together materials on what the board orientation should be, and I presented, it's usually about a two-hour session, uh, just kind of touch the highlights, but this is one of the important things. That, uh, one more point on director rights. If you suspect or believe there might be some illegal activity going on inside the company, what would you do as a director to ferret that out? Well, as a board member, I would immediately involve the uh, chair of the board in sharing my thinking. I would, uh, if it's a kind of an activity that's within the uh, jurisdiction uh, of an audit committee, I would ask the chair of the audit committee also to sit in, uh, comment, see if my suspicions bear some weight, and if if the others that I've asked to consult with me agree, we will then uh, go to management, the appropriate person in management. If it's the CEO, uh, fine, it, but we would go to the top management that is not otherwise either directly involved or responsible for it and begin to sort uh, go through that. What if it's a we, CEO issue? What would you do? I think we would also go to outstart with, in addition to the chairman of the board and maybe uh, one other person on the board, uh, also go to outside counsel and get some guidance in approaching the CEO 
and then uh, put ourselves in as position as, as good a position as we can uh, in putting together the documentation and information we have. If we've done a good job on the board, on the audit committee, on a risk committee, on a finance committee, on a comp committee, on a non-gov committee, if we've done a good job, we probably have uh, enough reliable information in our own internal records where we can have a pretty good confrontation, eye-to-eye uh, -eye confrontation with the CEO and speak with some degree of confidence in the uh, facts, uh, evidence I should say, but I think the facts that we have to uh, ask about it and make, make inquiry. I do think at the CEO or CFO level, I would like to have outside counsel uh, with us. Let's turn to the primary focus of an effective board, and uh, could you share with us your thoughts there, Bob, as you think of the primary duties and responsibilities of the board and how an effective board operates? You have to understand the company's uh, vision, its vision, its mission. But I've used, uh, I've kind of dumbed that down, and I say you've got to know how the company makes money. How does a company make money? Because everyone, the shareholders, employees, everyone relies on an effective uh, uh, strategy, uh, management to make money. So you need to know how to get the money through the, through the door. Of almost equal importance, maybe of equal importance, is a positive ethical tone at the top. There's, one of, there's some things that are bottom-up. Ethics is top-down. If the board doesn't stress ethics on a day-to-day -day basis and everything that it does, not just say it but live by it, uh, the organization is not being well served. So ethics is critical. So everyone down to the person who uh, works down in the, in the uh, warehouse has an understanding of the responsibility to be ethical in literally everything that they do. But that is top-down. If the other thing is a strong balance sheet, if there's a single sheet of paper that tells you whether or not the company is likely to meet its mission, it's the balance sheet. Does it have uh, hard assets? Does it have hard realizable assets? The easiest example in describing realizable assets was in 1986 when Finley Cumble, the law firm, failed. All of there was de debt was secured by law firm receivables. And they are not hard assets. Right. And uh, my recollection, the banks went from 100 and something like 120 million till they collected 16 million, all the debt secured by realizable assets. So you need to know that you have hard assets. You need to know that you have uh, uh, assets that can easily be liquidated if there's a need for cash. You have to have manageable debt. By that I mean whenever you enter into a loan agreement, there usually are covenants that you have to observe. And you have to make sure that you can meet those covenants, that you can manage the debt. It's not possible for management to manage the business and manage the debt. cannot be done. You have to pick one or the other. So I am a very much opponent of taking a look at the debt. Is it manageable? Is it secured by realizable assets? Do you have sufficient capital in reserve to uh, implement the strategies uh, two, three years out? How are you handling that? So that's very important. The other thing, of course, is the top line revenue and the bottom line. Uh, I'm always in favor of management keeping extra eyes on the top line 
and then hoping that you have really strong CFOs and others down there that are watching uh, the bottom line. You can hire good people to watch that. But if management and if the board are not watching the top line, it really doesn't make any difference what the bottom line is because it's not going to be enough. Building off our discussion around the board's primary focus, let's touch briefly on the important oversight areas, uh, strategy, succession planning for the CEO, CEO compensation, financial stewardship. You mentioned regulatory compliance, uh, risk management. How do you see this coming together? Is it, are these more of a full board responsibility, or do you think the committees in some it's, cases have to take the lead? Co committees will play a major role in managing the number of things that you will, will, will discuss that there I think are absolutely critical in board focus and management fo focus. The first is organizational health. Uh, and at least once every year, there needs to be a very thorough reporting up from management to the board on organizational health. That means relationship with your employees. That means relationship with your customers, third-party suppliers, with investors. What are, uh, is, does the company, uh, as a company have, and management have good, positive working relationships with all the people that it relies on to help run the business. The other thing is strategy and risk. Harvard Business Study concluded in 2015, 10-year study, talked about shareholder value and then where management, it, what the percentage of shareholder value is. And when it came to strategy, strategy primarily, they felt that their study had showed roughly 86% of shareholder value. And yet management and board spent 6% of their time. Financial reporting represented 2%. Financial reporting uh, took up 39% of the time. So you had a complete imbalance between how total, the board Total imbalance. Now, we, we all know that financial planning is out of line. It needs to be uh, better regulated more fairly regulated, small businesses, micro-cap companies, small-cap companies, uh, and, and the like. But boards need to understand that they must spend more, more time on strategy. Succession planning is key, and it should come up at least once a year. It's a critical HR function. Emergency succession planning and long-term succession planning. And one of the things that you will find in looking at, and if you're doing succession planning, that means you're really doing a deep dive down into middle management, cross training, making sure there, as many people as possible, are learning different aspects of the company's business, not necessarily being stuck in a silo. That way, you can move people around as they grow, and see how uh, they might be able to fit in uh, on a future basis. Uh, certainly, emergency succession planning is critical. And then the last thing is your financial planning, operational planning, and, and uh, budgeting. And these are four things. Uh, Bain Capital uh, talked about these things. Uh, they, have a, they put together a little publication. I think it's in some of the materials that the directors of Academy used 
where they talk about the four key key topics, succession planning, organizational health, operation, finance, and strategy. That at least once a year, management and the board does a deep dive into each of these areas. That doesn't mean you're not having periodic reports on a quarterly basis, but you're doing a deep dive. It's a major issue at that particular uh, board meeting. But those key areas for the board to focus could set an annual cadence for how the board no would no operate. no question about it and no question each of the things that you had talked about all get folded into uh, these these studies Bob in today's current environment we see a lot of what you know is being labeled as short-termism around company profits value creation versus the long-term perspective of what's in the best interest of all stakeholders uh, shareholders included. What are you? What you know, What are your perspectives around uh, that topic? I always uh, believe that you have, uh, you must act in the long term best interests of the shareholders, and there are so many competing thoughts over there outside the company. Shareholders and prospective investors, active shareholders, if you will. Uh, will have different views, uh, how you employ capital, your strategies, and the like. And the example that I've always liked to use is think of yourself. Is, is you're on the board, but think of yourself. You are the sole shareholder of the company. And that you and your family, all of your financial wealth and, and well-being is tied up into the long-term best interests of this company. That's how you must act. If you were the sole shareholder long-term and this company is, has to support you and your family, what would you do? That would, in your decision-making, then would be consistent with the long-term right thing to that, do. That's how company. I would kind of, that's how I would kind of say that. Now, active shareholders may not they don't <laughs> agree with, with that, that <laughs> but that's how I would put it. Two last areas, Bob, before we wrap up. One, if you kind of look forward and you think about boards, adapting to the challenges that are out there today externally uh, and the governance demands that are being put on boards today. Could you compare and contrast kind of where you see today the boards and the focus of governance versus five to ten years ago and what changes might lie ahead for new directors who are coming onto their first board? Most board members have, in addition to their normal regular board responsibilities, uh, which includes telephone calls between meetings, uh, conferences with management on a, on a regular basis, uh, perhaps. Uh, but they're also on committees. And if you have boards that have more than three or four or five committees, uh, the likelihood of you're going to be on a couple of committees. What we have found is that the responsibilities uh, of discharging your duties as a committee a member and as a board member uh, has increased greatly. Being informed, being prepared at the board meetings. I think it's almost impossible for a director to say that she or he is doing a good job if they're spending less than 300 hours a year on the board of a company if they're on, uh, let's say, two committees and the board. I think it's it's you, there's a lot of preparation, a lot of work that you need to do uh, to be informed and to be ready to make a, a decision in the long-term best interest of shareholders. I think as matters continue to uh, evolve, more time must be spent on strategy, 
uh, for those people who have had uh, experience serving on a privately held company, they'll find that 90% of board meetings, advisory board or statutory board, you're talking about strategy. A big difference between publicly held company and, 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 and privately held, and yet shareholder value is roughly the same right. for both. So you're going to see more strategy. What we're seeing is your better run companies. Every 30 days, the C-suite officers are sitting down and they're doing a deep dive on the daily tactics that they employ to implement their strategy. So it's not just is the strategy going, but are the daily tactic, tactics that we are using to it's implement the strategy. Focus. It's a constant focus. Yeah. And that's, I think that's of great value to the shareholders. And that takes a lot of time. And I, I believe that a valuable board members need to be somewhat active in the business community. I'm not a big believer in age restrictions on board members, but I think it's you must continue to remain. If you're fully retired, like I am, you still must be active in a number of ways so you're current on what's going on in the business world. And I think that's of, uh, that is of real, uh, real value. So, If you were to, to wrap up, Bob, if you were to look back and kind of knowing what you know now, what would you have done differently as you step into your first board, knowing what you know now, if you could go back and start over again? On every single board that I've been on, I think almost without exception, I don't think I contributed much uh, to the board during the first eight to ten months. I just sat back and listened. And I go back and I, my very first board was a grade school board of a Catholic parish. And I wasn't on the, I wasn't on the parish council. This was a grade school board. And I had taught school before I went to law school. I just zipped up. I wanted to listen to what other people are saying. That's a common trait. And I think that it's important to try and overcome that in as a respectful way as possible and asking some questions and say, I'm new on the board, I want to learn, learn a little bit more, help me understand a little bit more of what we're talking about so I can do a better job. Uh, but it's a natural reaction to kind of not say a lot. and you get, sit back, sit back and watch, and I think that's right, Keith. You sit back and, and relax a little bit. So I don't think on any board that I've been on that I've contributed much uh, for a good portion of my first year. And I would correct that knowing what I know now. Well, thank you so much, Bob, for sharing your thoughts today on uh, the duties and director responsibilities of public company boards. And we've talked about private company boards. We'll be back in a few weeks with our next Craft of Governance podcast. Again, thanks to Allegis Partners and to you, Bob, for your continued support of the Director's Academy and our mission to advance diversity in the boardroom. Thank you very much. Thank you. To learn more about the Director's Academy, go to directorsacademy.com.